Radio 9.12. Normally on this show, we start off talking about the upcoming opponent, but we kind of thought that you guys might like to hear some more about the Ohio State game. <laughs> uh, Alex is protesting. He wanted to jump and get the Iowa offense over right away. <laughs> well, we usually have a segment on here where we talk about what we saw in UFR. Mine is not quite complete suffering from little bit of burnout this week guys but i've got the charting done and i've got it written up it just hasn't gotten up on the site yet so i am prepared to discuss it but uh let's start with the defense what really stuck out to you seth man this thing was played at a very high level especially the past defense so like all year we've been watching michigan we would figure out how they defend with like a light box right where they're just gonna they have to beat a block every time and they do that so they can buy an extra safety, and then they were you know, sitting against Penn State, who does not have a deep passing game, with an extra safety back, and we're like, okay, we know what's coming. Finally, we got to see the proof of concept, right? And it wasn't like they were just sitting back and keeping a guy on top and just doubling Harrison. They did a lot of that, but they just kept on using all these different coverages, and I had to go to Coach Twitter to figure out what they were called, and you know, there's, there's palms, and there's like all sorts of switch coverages, and then Ohio State starts figuring out what Michigan's doing, and they have all these tells, and they have all this motion that tells them, and they flip their tight end, the receiver, and it's just like, it was like doing an NFL game, where just, there's just layer upon layer upon layer of stuff going on, um, and then really it just comes down to blocking and tackling and passing, and you know, I thought that there were a couple things that I changed my opinion on from when we uh, talked about it on the podcast, but in general, Mason Graham was really the difference like we thought he was going to be. So, is he like a a full-fledged superstar in your eyes at this point? Yes. Yes. Like, like I, you know, Aiden Hutchinson set a bar in 21 that's just ludicrous. But Graham could probably, Graham looks like he's going to have Aiden Hutchinson numbers next year if he plays as much as Hutchinson did. Right, yeah. Which he won't. Right. (laughs) Right. But he played... They'll have Grant, and they'll have Benny, and they'll probably get a kid in the portal. Right. Ooh. Oh, well. Right, but, I mean, in games, as far as, like, effectiveness and how much they're going to want to use him, right? Like, in this game, um, he had 42 snaps, which is, you know, 10 more than they normally get their defensive tackles. Uh, Wait and, a minute. And- Speaking of things you'll want to use a lot, we want to thank Underground Printing for starting this and making it all possible. Check them out at UGPMichiganApparel.com or check out MGOBlogstore.com. Or you can get a hat that says bet and a shirt that tells people with asterisks to die mad. Let's not forget our associate sponsors, Peak Wealth Management, Matt Demarest, Realtor and Lender, Human Element, Ann Arbor Elder Law, Michigan Law Grant, The Phil Klein Insurance Group, Venue by 4M, Winewood Organics, Sharon's Heating and Air Conditioning, Signal Wire, where we are recording this now, and Tom Brady's new app, Autograph Rewarding Fans, where you earn rewards for things like reading MGO blog and listening to our podcasts. Anyway, Seth, continue. Yeah, so... We we did see the defensive tackle rotation tighten up. It was Jenkins, Graham, and Grant, and Graham played, uh, you know, twenty five percent more than the other guys. Um, Good and Benny were only out there for under ten snaps. It's just Benny was fine. Um, he's not at the other the level of the other guys. And Good, you know, we saw him that one drive, and when he got on the field, Ohio State locked him on there, and he just can't do the things in the run game that they need him to do in order to like, you have to win those blocks 
that's the trick, right? You have to ha- you have to dominate. You can't just be an okay player up front. And Good's an okay player, and then he's good at pass rushing. And they lock him on the field, and they just run at him. And you know there were some things, other things that went on in that drive, obviously. But I mean, that was the one time that Ohio State was able to move the ball with consistency. Yeah. Um, so. What did we think of secondary members not named Will Johnson, like, overall? Because <laughs> they survived without him for about a third of the game. Yeah. Uh, so that was – Michigan just had more and more coverages they were throwing around. Um, Sane was still uh, can play corner, but you can tell that he hasn't played it as much. You know, there's the, the last catch by Harrison um, on, their, on their final drive where – a cornerback who's been at it long enough is going to know to kind of fall off on his tight end and not, you know, if you give up seven yards and an under, that's fine. But you don't want to give up 15 yards or 22 yards to Marvin Harrison on the top end of a smash. And that's just a thing that comes with, you know, recognizing it because you've been in that position and you know the the marginal spots. But Singer still, when Singer still was doing his thing, was incredible. Um, we're not we're, we're not surprised by that at all. Uh, the interesting thing was that McBurrows pretty much hung in and did everything he needed to uh, when he was playing that position. So, you know, if we're looking for next year and not having Mike Sainer still, uh, Jane McBurrows seems like he is the nickel of the future. And I think when they, when they lost Will Johnson, that's what they did is they turned to him. And he knew all the coverages. He didn't bust on anything. And a lot of times coverage grades, it's not like – where you come out in the grades, it's where you don't come out, right? It's, you're not getting targeted. When you look downfield, McBurrows is just not getting targeted very much. Um, Wallace, the same thing. He, um, you know, he, you can call it, your your mileage may vary on whether it was a catch or it was a fumble. It's so close, it doesn't, you can't really make a comment on it. But the point is, he was there and knocked it out, but he was also behind on a, in one on one and let the guy turn inside of him that's his limitation right like that's as much as you can get out of Josh Walsh and I thought you know if you're going up against a bunch of murder savages <laughs> then this is what's going to happen to you but short of that this is a great secondary page was great and boring Rod Moore was back to being himself and then the last thing that last interception even if Jalen Hero doesn't come through I mean even if he had no pressure whatsoever Moore was baiting that. He had that set up. So that was going to be an interception either way, and uh, obviously Johnson had one too. So these guys were ready, man. Uh, Offensively, a tough day for the offensive line um, because not only are Ohio State's defensive ends excellent run defenders, uh, Tyleek Williams played out of his mind in this game. And he, we're going to have some scores we haven't seen all year. Basically, now most of the guys managed to scrape above positive, above zero, and get to the positives. But I don't think we're going to hit the Mendoza line of a two to one positive ratio that we're looking for as a successful day on the ground. And Carson Barnhart, in particular, did struggle, and okay. he, he struggled at tackle and he struggled at guard, um, much like he did last year. The upside for Barnhart is that he was probably Michigan's best pass protector. Um, so styles <laughs> make fights, guys. Yeah. So he got he got maybe one minus at some point, and everybody else was exposed at some point. This was a game where I think Michigan's offensive line lost the battle up front for the first time 
in maybe three years, excepting the Georgia game. Yeah. And what got Michigan out of there was they got a superlative performance from J.J. McCarthy. And after the game, it's revealed that he's been working through an issue since Penn State. That's why they don't run him. That's why um, <clears throat> they're still committed to the ground and pound, despite the fact that your quarterback is completing 80% of his passes. But yeah, he had two plus threes in migrating the touchdown to William uh, to Wilson and then the sideline throw uh, after getting pressured to Cornelius Johnson. I thought that the throw back across the field um, actually could have been a touchdown, but it felt like JJ was expecting Cornelius to continue to drift to his right and Cornelius stops. JJ throws it where it needs to be, which is away, away from the t- defender. Johnson makes a great diving catch. But if he's still on his feet, there's nobody between him and the end zone. Yeah. And that was, you know, a recurring kind of theme is Michigan was close to breaking three or four or five plays. And that's going to happen in every game. But to be able to do it against Ohio State is a different level. And I want to go back to the quorum touchdown because in the first half, Michigan does the thing that you can't do against Ohio State. And that's leave JTT unblocked. It doesn't matter like that you have a plan to block him later in the play with the split flow blocker or a puller. You can't do it. Right. Just keep someone attached to that guy at all times. He's he's so fast and he's so powerful. There's one play where he gets to essentially the same point laterally on the field as JJ McCarthy and Zinter blows him up, but because that block happens so close to the center of Michigan's offense, Edwards has to cut to the backside, and it's just a dead play. <clears throat> so they do this three or, three or four times in the first half. They stop doing it. <clears throat> the problem with that is what is any motion of a tight end towards JTT's side now? It has to be insert ISO. Right. Because you have to kick out JTT. So they run an insert ISO, and the linebackers know it's insert ISO. So who scrapes over the top? Steel Chambers. Who's One-yard gain. The next play is the Barner tight end delay. And that's when Zinner goes out. The play after that is the quorum touchdown, which is a designed counter that is supposed to look like insert ISO. So two weeks ago, I think, or maybe it was last week, I gave uh, Edwards a ding because mm-hmm. it looked like insert ISO and he just ran off the front side of the play. In the first half, he did that again. And he was one Nugent block away from scoring a 30-yard touchdown, but Nugent Williams crushes Nugent, and the, the gap closes. All three of the second-level defenders, the two linebackers and Sonny Styles, had committed to the ISO side of that play. So they had – ISO is a counter to your duo, your split, your split duo. Right. So they had the counter, and then they anticipated that Ohio State would be susceptible to the counter, to their counter, and then Blake Corum pays it off with the most important play – in the history of Michigan football. Probably not true, but it could be true. <laughs> I mean, so, you, you can make this argument. You can make the argument with the game, with the moment that it was, with, uh, I mean, I, yeah. I, I've thought about this. I thought about the exact same question you're talking about, like what other moments, and you can go through some incredible things in Michigan history, but 
considering what was on the line in this game, consider what was on the line in that moment. And, you know, if they get another field goal right there, it's it's a different story, right? Yeah, and for that sequence to work out so well was, was brilliant. And I just gave it an RPS plus one because the way I grade is very sort of particular. Mm-hmm. And you get an RPS plus one if you induce a guy out of a gap. It's not plus three, the halfback pass, passes plus three, et cetera, et cetera. And I got a negative RPS for this game. Mm-hmm. But I, it's like negative two. It's not, not a big deal. Um, <clears throat> but I can't emphasize how important that one particular play call was. Um, and, you know, Michigan got its RPSs in big chunks for the most part. And then they kind of bled it back on plays where Ohio State had an extra guy in the box and that guy was relevant or they left JTT unblocked, (laughs) which they should have known you can't do. Right. Because anybody who's ever watched this guy should should already know that. So the the things that they gave back are partially because they were playing a very difficult defense to deal with. Like they came into this game and they were by far the best uh, pass defense in America in adjusted EPA per play, mm-hmm. like lapping the field, and they're not and just throwing their safeties at the line of scrimmage this year. So they actually no, they weren't. They yeah. were they were plus one in the box pretty much all the time. But they always had a deep safety except for like the final two plays, and they were able to control Michigan's offensive line with their defensive line. And the difference for Michigan offensively was JJ McCarthy and a couple of play calls, and Blake Horn. Now, isn't this how Michigan plays, though? I mean, we've talked about this before, that like we get annoyed how they use their play action, or misuse their play action. So instead of having consistent efficiency with it, they go for the big shot, and like they set well, they, something up. I mean, they, they tried two deep shots to Wilson, mm-hmm. and the first one is a bad read by J.J., because, you know, Wilson's up against Denzel Burke, who's by far their better corner, mm-hmm. and... On the other side of the field, Cornelius Johnson is running an out and up, and Igbenosin gets absolutely toasted, and and Johnson is going to be open by five yards, but he never comes off Wilson, and that's a missed opportunity. The second deep shot to Wilson was one of the more frustrating play calls of the day for because it's play action, but it's man coverage, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> Johnson runs a post, middle of the field is closed, so that's not where you're going, and then Wilson runs a hitch that turns into a corner route that doesn't have anything to do with the fact that they're running play action. Cause those linebackers are crossing the, the, the uh, line of scrimmage and there's nobody in that zone. Cause they're going max pro and they're having AJ Barner block Sawyer, but right. AJ Barner picked up four pass pro minuses. Cause they asked him to block two of the best defensive ends in America and it didn't go well. <laughs> and I guess you get the, the tight end delay as, as a compensation for that. But overall, I kind of felt like contrary to prior game plans against Ohio State, I thought this one wasn't exactly what I wanted. And I think part of that is just the fact that Ohio State's defense is much better than it has been the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. Because two years ago, it was the Kerry Coombs disaster slash midseason patch job. And a year ago, it was Jim Knowles going cover zero all the time. So the opportunities for big plays were much sm- more... Um, narrow. Yeah, there was a smaller window to hit, but I kind of, I, I do kind of wonder if not having Harbaugh affected some of that. 
I but then of, again, yeah, I I, I haven't felt that. Get, like Sharon is almost too Harbaugh. He like he overdoes <clears throat> the things that Harbaugh does because he's trying to be Jim. Well, maybe, but I do want to point out that even though there weren't a whole lot of RPS plays on the final drive, I love the sequencing of that. You start off with a six-yard pass, and then you're kind of moving along. You you bring in a couple of, of different formations. You give them a couple of different looks. I didn't like the final series still, even after reviewing it, but the rest of that drive I thought was excellent. And um, they really got to work on that package with Mullings mm-hmm. and Edwards out there at the same time. Because every time Mullings gets an opportunity for a lead block, a linebacker goes flying across the screen. <laughs> so I, yeah, I'm I'm very interested in that. I'm interested in putting Orgy in that package because <laughs> you can you can motion Edwards out and uh, and use him as a screen threat and kind of relieve some of that pressure you get from having what's essentially a wildcat quarterback on the field. And heck, you could direct snap it to Donovan Edwards and use Orgy as a lead blocker. There's a lot of possibilities. Oh, well, I so Penn State just hired Kansas as offensive coordinator who has plays like that where like there's two don't, quarterbacks. No, on no, the no, field. no, 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 Don't give Orgy any ideas. Because <laughs> um, I, I mean, I clipped his second run in this game too, which only went for two yards because he got two defensive linemen. He got Sawyer and Tyleek Williams mm-hmm. tackling him at the same time, and he broke both of those tackles. He gained three yards after he should have lost one. But just in terms of a physical package, like I think next year you have to get him, I don't know, at least a couple packages where he can get 10 snaps a game because he's a he's a unique threat. Um, and when Trente came in, he had one uh, minus two. on I think the first play he was in where he let uh, someone cross his face. But first play was crushed. in his forearms touchdown. Well, like, next drive then. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and then... He crushed Williams a couple of times, and he was fresh, and Williams was tired, I imagine. But just the sheer power that he manages is impressive. I, I'm hoping that there's not going to be too much of a drop-off um, because Zach Zinner is a really good player, but every time I grade Trente, he grades out really well. So mm-hmm. um, I'm hopeful that we he can be the, the secret weapon. All right, we're going to take a break, come back, talk some Iowa football. Want the perfect game day outfit? Underground Printing has unique, great-fitting U of M apparel and officially licensed apparel from legendary Michigan names like Woodson, Howard, Eufer, and more. UGP also specializes in custom printed apparel and promotional items for groups, events, and businesses. Whether you need one shirt as a gift or 1,000 shirts for a charity walk, Underground can customize almost anything for groups large or small. To learn more, visit Underground Printing in one of our three convenient locations around Ann Arbor or online at undergroundshirts.com. It's painless. It's online. It's group ordering made easy for your next custom printed apparel order. Pogo from Underground Printing will save you time and hassle. Whether you're selling shirts for a fundraiser, organizing a large event, or trying to collect sizes and payment for a family reunion, UGP is here to help. Save time and hassle every step of the way with our easy-to-use site. No more guessing what to order, chasing down people to pay, or wasting time trying to sort out the order. We'll set it up, and you can just sit back and relax. We can even take care of individual shipping. To learn more about Pogo, visit us at any of our convenient locations or at pogo.undergroundshirts.com. Hey, it's Nick Hopwood, Certified Financial Planner, Founder and President at Peak Wealth Management. Check us out at peakwm.com slash mgoblog. When you're watching the game, everyone knows what the score is. But you might be at halftime of your career. 
Do you know what the score is? Are you winning or do you need to play catch up? If you're behind in the second half of your career financially, we may need to run a hurry up offense like John Navarre in the 2003 game at Minnesota or run a three-quarter court press after a made free throw like Coach Howard likes to call. My team of CFPs at Peak Wealth Management are here to help you understand what the score is and what you need to do to win. Your spreadsheet doesn't tell you the score like we can. If you're going to spend all your free time watching replays of the 2021-2022 Ohio State games on repeat, you need to outsource your financial planning and investing with us at peakwm.com slash mgoblog. At Peak, our goal is to help you retire with peak confidence. Winewood Organics is Ann Arbor's only cannabis microbusiness for adults 21 and older. They're a grower, processing lab, and dispensary rolled into one, cultivating and producing flour, old-school hash, edibles, CBD products, and more. You can find them across the street from Kroger on South Maple, just west of downtown, and at winewoodorganics.com. Veterans and MedCard holders save 10% on all orders, and first-time customers save 25%, as long as you're not wearing scarlet and gray. Hi, I'm Pete Cavarilla owner of Sharon's Heating and Air Conditioning. We've been servicing Ann Arbor and Metro Detroit for over 40 years, and we know that the last thing you want to worry about is your heating and cooling system breaking down. Right now is a good time to sign up for our preventative maintenance plan, so you don't have to worry about it in November when the fourth quarters get interesting. Our maintenance members also get discounts and service calls, and you can rest assured our team plays tough in sun or snow and have never been called soft by Lou Holtz. Whether you need a tune-up, are ready for a new system, or want to upgrade your air quality before winter, Call us anytime or schedule an appointment on our website at SharonsHeating.com. In southeastern Michigan, the yearly cost for a nursing home averages approximately 100000 It doesn't have to, though. Reed McCarthy founded Ann Arbor Elder Law after handling a tricky situation for his own family. Years of experience later, his boutique firm works with clients across southeast Michigan dealing with Medicaid planning, long-term care, and tax, disability, and family law, not to mention family dynamics. If you have a family member who may need that level of care, or if you're ready to start your own estate plan, Reed can give you a plan for the future. Visit AnnArborElderLaw.com or call 734-945-9693. That's 734-945-9693. attention to the Iowa Hawkeyes, Michigan's opponent in the Big Ten Championship game. And we started for, with OSU for two reasons. One is that we thought people would like to hear more about Michigan's 30-24 to 24 victory over Ohio State for the third straight year. And the other one was it's like, ah, oh, Iowa. <laughs> Why you got to be so Iowa? So let's start with the offense because we're mad that this is the opponent for the game. This is possibly the worst offense in the Power Five. Um, <clears throat> I, I mean, it, that's not. I'm going to re- restate that. This is the worst offense in the Power. Five. <laughs> it's probably not the worst offense in Division One, but it's close. They lose McNamara mid-season. They lose Eric All mid-season. They Eric All is still their leading receiver. He hasn't played in six weeks. Um, <clears throat> Their starting quarterback has thrown for about 4.8 yards in attempt, I believe. It's it's 
almost inconceivable to envision this offense driving the field against Michigan's defense, Alex. Yeah, because they haven't done it against anybody. And we now have a pretty good sense that Michigan's defense is quite good. So it's just tough to kind of see it happening. There's problems all over this defense. Everybody has kind of keyed in on Deacon Hill as sort of the punchline of the offense of sorts. And look, Deacon Hill isn't good, but he's far from the only problem. There are problems all over. You have to have multi-layers of errors and issues to get to this point in in the offense. And it was not a good unit when Cade McNamara was healthy. And it has indeed only gotten worse when Deacon Hill took over, which coincided with the loss of Eric Hall, as well as Luke Lachey, who you may recall was kind of the one guy coming off last year's team that we thought, oh, he might be okay. And that's left them with zero pass catchers. And so when you have a terrible starting quarterback, it's made even worse, surprisingly, when he doesn't have anybody to throw to. Yeah, so for context, McNamara, 90 attempts, 5.6 yards in attempt, 51% completion percentage. The relative good news for Iowa is that Deacon Hill is completing 48% of his passes for 4.9 yards in attempt. So it's not that much of a step back. <laughs> it's the bright side. <laughs> I my, my thing with this offense is that you could not possibly design an offense better suited to get their ass handed to them by Michigan. Like, just the, okay. the they're playing two tight ends, even though both their starting tight ends are out. I, I know Eric All might be back, but that means Michigan gets to put Kenneth Grant on the field with Mason Graham and Chris Jenkins. So, you, you to save Michigan from, you know, Samer still goes and plays cornerback. And then the two running plays that they like to base out of are stretch. And then they counter that with uh, with counter Trey, which is exactly what Ohio State does. So Michigan has been practicing exactly that all season. And now you don't have Michigan sitting back with two safeties doing nothing because they don't have to hide their switch coverages anymore. And they're probably going to want to practice they, them. They're going to sit back, though, right? Like <laughs> They haven't changed all year. Yeah. And this doesn't seem to be the offense where it's like, okay, we got to bring a guy into the box. No. Now, I should <laughs> should mention that LaShawn Williams is averaging five yards a carry. So, yeah, so he gets like one huge run uh, every few weeks, and he has this tendency to to break one like run of consequence, whether it's the, the big, big one or just a, like a 15-yarder he had against Nebraska to get them in field goal range to win that game. But he also had a 50-yarder in that game. If you subtract three runs that he has this season over 50 yards – uh, his yards per carry drops under four. So this is not a rushing offense that grinds you down to down in any real way, but they have shown the occasional ability to rip off a huge explosive run. I think he has an 83 yarder in that Wisconsin game as well. So uh, something to keep in mind, I guess. <laughs> we gotta, we, we're, we're getting like dangerously dismissive about this unit and it's hard not to be. It's they, the receivers. This is the part I want to talk about. These wide receivers are unbelievably bad. Like that's my biggest takeaway from watching this team. I'm not like a wide receiver guru or whatever, but it's astonishing that you can have an FBS program power five with this caliber of wide receiver. Nico uh, Ragaini, who is their leading target man. He's got like a 53 grade on PFF. Like none of these guys are even over 60 on PFF. Well, he- Maybe uh Caleb Brown is just inching into the 60 range. But how many times has Deacon Hill dropped back and there's just nobody open against Nebraska? 
who let Kattenhauser go like 66% completion for seven yards in a temp. Like Nebraska is not a good pass defense and they couldn't get open against them. And then when they do get open, if Deacon Hill on the off chance throws them a catchable ball, they drop it often. It, it's that's, that's the thing. Regaini can, can run a route, but he drops it. And then the other guy they got is Caleb Brown, um, who was like the extra guy. Like he used to be buddies with uh, with JJ and AJ Henning. Like they were all playing together. They did all their um, practicing together in Illinois. And like Michigan was going after him, and then he bopped up to a, a top fifty recruit, and Ohio State grabbed him. But he's supposed to be a slot bug. He's not supposed to be your outside receiver. And they don't really use him like that. They just have him, you know, run. He, you need somebody tall. Deacon Hill does not have a very accurate pass, and he tends to overthrow, not underthrow. So every time he's throwing a Caleb Brown, even if he's open, it's going like two feet above his head. Yeah, even Ragaini, um, he has twenty six catches. Those catches go for eight point seven yards a completion. So this is not like a downfield passing game. He has sixty one targets. And he's averaging 8.7 yards a catch. Like, that is abominable. Do you see uh, Estranga's yards per catch? Uh, no. Like five point something on like 20 catches. <laughs> and that's their leading tight end. I, it, uh, I don't uh, really know what to say here. It's the one thing I want to say about Deacon Hill, though, he's really chunky. 258. <laughs> 6'3, Oh, I, yeah. I'm pretty sure he's the heaviest quarterback I've charted. Oh man, he's 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 a chalk. When you put they they put his picture up every year, and he looks like a, a defensive tackle. Um, well, they they did use him as a battering ram a little bit like, late in the year, but he is not really a mobile quarterback. He's got negative ninety rushing yards on the year. He's not a guy with a lot of escapability. So if that pass rush that Michigan has had for the back half of the season where they've been getting 40 to 60% pressure rates on everyone except Ohio state where they got to 26, which still isn't bad. Like, I mean, it's going to be over before it begins. Yeah. And the other thing with this team, I don't really love their offensive line. It's actually not as bad as I was expecting, but it's not particularly great, especially the left side of that line, Mason Richmond and uh, rusty Feff. One of the great names this week. There's there's a several great names. I believe the uh, fullback's last name is Large. So yes. Hayden <laughs> Large. Hayden Large. <laughs> so uh, pass protection is probably not going to be great. I thought run blocking, they were okay against uh, Nebraska. But the problem with this team is they did this over and over again against Nebraska. They come out with multiple tight ends who are not passing threats at all. They come out with a wide receiver and the opponent says, we're basically going cover zero because the chance Nico Ragaini is going to burn us over the top is 0%. So they roll the safeties down and it's basically 10 on eight in the box over and over and over again. And even if you get good blocks at the line, the linebackers are right there and your run is done after two yards. And uh, LaShawn Williams ghosting a linebacker safety is really their only hope to get anything going because they're out of ideas as a run offense. They have a non-existent passing game. They might as well run the triple option is, is what I'm saying. I, all right. We should mention that their offensive line is pretty banged up. 
So like the, yes. r- the yeah. right tackle Jennings Dunker is going to play, but he you think that he's been you know he's been out. Bo Stevens is out. He was one of their returning starters. Logan Jones was supposed to be their very good center. Um, he's out. Uh, so like they're they're playing short some guys. It's not going to help. Like <laughs> I think Mason Graham would have destroyed Logan Jones as well. But you're putting Mason Graham against Rusty Feff, and that's just going to be a blowout. Yeah, uh, Deacon Hill's been pressured on thirty. 30- Seven percent of his dropbacks this year playing in the Big Ten West, so it seems like he is likely to be under siege. Um, the number of big time throws Pro Football Focus has traded for him is one versus fourteen turnover worthy passes. He's actually only thrown six interceptions, so he's actually been a little bit fortunate. The, uh, <clears throat> I mean, we're just spending a lot of time repeating ourselves, yeah. And like, <laughs> Almost inconceivable that I was going to be able to do much. Now, the one thing that we have seen for chunks of the year is if you run stretch and Michigan is in possession of the light box, you can do some work. But they adjusted against Minnesota, and I think that they'll come into this expecting a lot of stretch and having a plan for it. So, Yeah. The last piece I wanted to mention is Hayden Large transferred from Dort, which I think is the first time we've ever mentioned Dort University on this podcast. Dort Dort. University in Sioux Center, Iowa, in the northwest corner of the state. I had to look that up. So, All right. We're going to take a break, come back, and talk about the much more interesting half of the Iowa Hawkeyes. Hey, it's Nick Hopwood, founder and president of Peak Wealth Management, your MGO financial coach. And it is our goal to help you retire with peak confidence. Check us out at peakwm.com slash mgoblog. Bo says the team, the team, the team. Lately, my mantra has been the plan, the plan, the plan. Check out the Trust the Plan podcast. Search out my name, Nick Hopwood, on any platform and give us a follow. You know, we haven't updated this ad in over two years because since the last versions went live, we only had one Big Ten loss. And honestly, I'm a little superstitious. But for this ad, I just want to give a shout out to all the loyal Wolverines and MGO blog fans who've reached out to us from as far as France, Japan, Seattle, San Francisco, Dallas, Florida, New York, and of course, all over the great state of Michigan. And you guessed it, we're pulling recruits out of Ohio as well, just like Harbaugh. Thank you very much. So no matter where life has taken you after your time in Ann Arbor, we're here to help you build a plan you can trust. If you're looking for a second opinion, visit us at peakwm.com slash mgoblog today. Is your online store sluggish, outdated, underperforming? You may be suffering from chronic crappy website disorder. One in three online stores built by your brother's friend's nephew currently suffers from chronic crappy website. But now, there's hope. Introducing Human Element. Huel has helped hundreds suffering from CCW to turn their online stores around, creating fast, secure, and engaging online experiences that turn visitors into customers and put products back at the top of their search engine game. Before Huel, I had abandoned carts, browser errors, and poorly animated GIFs. Now, with Huel, I can focus on what I'm actually good at, running my business. Jeffrey, would you be a deer and pull the Ferrari around? Side effects may include increased traffic, customer conversions, better ROI, compliments, elation, and early retirement. Why live with the disappointment of chronic crappy website disorder? Speak to your human element consultant today to see if Huel is right for you. If you want to see where our post-game podcast happens, or if you need a spot to land in Ann Arbor, check out 4M, Prentice Partners' beautiful brand-new flagship property at 830 Henry Street in Lower Burns Park and across the bridge from the Big House. 
Their 11 spacious six-bedroom, six-bath suites feature state-of-the-art digital capabilities and are laid out for comfortable, efficient collaboration. You can also rent a 4M unit for shorter stays, say if you want to come to town for a football weekend. I want to add myself that they're also taking over Lucky's. We're really excited about their plans for that space. So if you're by the stadium, swing by 830 Henry or visit Prentice4M.com. Maize and Blue Nation, it's Tom Brady. I co-founded Autograph with one mission in mind, change the fan experience for the better. That's why I'm excited to announce the release of a new app that recognizes the biggest Michigan fans. The Autograph fandom app gives you access to the best Michigan content, fan challenges, and exclusive rewards for diehard Wolverines, all for doing the things you already do, like listening to this podcast. Head over to the Apple App Store and search for Autograph Rewarding Fans and download today. Welcome back to MGO Radio at 9.12. We turn our attention to the Iowa defense, which is once again very, very good. Uh, and the thing that stands out uh, is that this secondary is elite, even without Cooper DeJot, who is out for this game and probably whatever bowl game Iowa ends up in. But that doesn't mean that they don't have dudes in the secondary. So Sebastian Castro is one of the highest graded defenders in the country. Uh, Xavier Wankpa, Wankpa, I don't know, Wankpa, Wampa. 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 yeah, is a guy who was a five star to twenty four seven last year. Comes in as a freshman, is grading out almost at the Castro level. Quinn Schulte is another excellent safety. You know, with Dijon out, they've had to turn to guys who aren't quite on his level, but it's not like they're they're bad. And you think, okay, Iowa secondary, a, a bunch of really c- good guys who are well-coached, <laughs> but don't have, you know, that outstanding athleticism. That is not the case for this Iowa secondary. This Iowa secondary could probably keep up with Ohio State's passing game. Well, Wonkba is yes. a guy – I'm sorry to interrupt there, man, but, like, Ohio State was after him, and that was, like, the – the the first case study of NIL where like you know can a local guy who's a five star go to his local school because he's worth more to them in the you know as is in his NIL worth than it would be if he just you know is another guy on the Ohio State roster and that was a huge get for them and like you said it changes the outlook the other guy i don't know if you want to you know he's part of the back seven is Nick Jackson the Virginia transfer who kind of looks more like a safety out there it's very different than the linebackers that Iowa used to run Alex? Yeah, the uh, Iowa secondary, one quick thing. I'm sorry, Brian, but I'm 99% sure it's Cooper DeGene. You've been really? trying to make the the Dijon thing happen all year. Oh, I'm, that was I'm probably sure that was probably my fault. I throw all the French at Brian, and then he <laughs> and then it turns out it's it's David the Julius. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but no, the the safeties is kind of the duality of of origin in in some ways because you have. Xavier Wampa, a five-star, which Iowa doesn't normally get, and he's playing pretty much like what you would imagine five-star safety coached by Phil Parker to look like. And then you have Quinn Schulte next to him, who's a really good player, and he's classic Iowa, right? This guy, pull up his 24-7 page, 
didn't even have a ranking, wasn't even on any radar, some just random, you know, Iowa uh, sort of guy from Cedar Rapids, no one had ever heard of. And fast forward five years, he's an excellent player. And their corners, uh, after DeGene's injury, um, they haven't really lost a whole lot. Deshaun Lee's been pretty good for them. Jamari Harris was their other starter. He's been solid all year. He's a guy that's been around. He played as a starter, I believe, on the 21 defense that Michigan played in Indianapolis. And then Sebastian Castro has been one of the top grading players in the country for PFF. Really uh, a useful player in sort of that nickel hybrid space player role they call the cash position. So those five guys that, yeah, I would put that right up there with Ohio State. They are excellent. But the one question with Iowa's defense, and this is sort of what I centered my piece about, is that they ain't played nobody. And the median offense that Iowa played this season in SP Plus was ranked 94th. <laughs> Jesus. They played one offense in the top 49 in SP Plus, and it was Penn State an offense that you may recall was comatose against Michigan and Ohio state and fired their offensive coordinator in the middle of the season because it was bad. And they put up 31 points very On gradually. 97 plays. Yeah. With the plays in that game were I think 97 to 32. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I'm not expecting such an extreme discrepancy in this game because I think Michigan is going to play less aggressively than Manny Diaz does. But <clears throat> they can wear down uh, if and when they there's the starch can go out of them if they get down by a couple scores and it's the third quarter and it kind of looks like nothing's happening. And the other kind of thing that kind of jumps out from their defense is they are not a team that has a lot of pass rush weapons. Yeah, they so, lost uh, Lucas Van Ness from last year's team, who was their edge. They didn't really use enough. I remember charting him last year and being like, why don't they use this guy more? And then sure enough, he goes from dark horse to the first round of the NFL draft and uh, picked by the uh, the Packers, I believe. So that was a loss for them. And the result is they have these edge guys that are good, but I don't really think great. Um, and you look at that Penn State game and Aller had a pretty good game in that one. Not incredible, but pretty good. If you watch the tape, uh, Gary Danielson is rambling about Aller's NFL future which not really a thing that was said about Aller against Penn State and uh, against Ohio State and Michigan. And the big thing when you watch those clips is he had the time to set his feet, which we talked about was so important for Aller. And they weren't really getting a, a home a lot. If you look at the individual grading for that game, they were in like the 50s for pass rush mostly. And I think that lined up with what I saw from that tape. So I don't anticipate a ton of organic rush, but they were pretty blitzy against Illinois in the game I charted. Yeah, well, <clears throat> Jackson, the safety leg linebacker that Seth mentioned, is their highest graded rusher, but he's only rushed 77 times. So that's like six or seven opportunities a game for him to make something happen. They have one defensive lineman with a win rate in double digits. That's uh, Joe Evans, who's got a 12% win rate. Not exactly 18, 20% like we're seeing some, from, from some of the Michigan players. So. <clears throat> Seems like Michigan should be able to drop back and have a relatively clean pocket. Now, there are some questions because Michigan is going to be playing Trent A. Jones at right tackle in all likelihood with uh, Barnhart moving into guard. So that's going to be 
an adjustment for both of them. And we haven't really seen Trent A. Jones do a whole lot of pass protecting since he was a starter almost a year and a half ago. So those are potential issues. But I assume that Michigan is just going to ground and pound in this game as much as they can. Because like I remember last year's game where Michigan was running duo over and over and over again, and Iowa was sitting back in their two-deep shell, and they never really came out of it. So Michigan was running for six yards a pop on their base run play. And I don't know if they have the horses to not bring up an extra guy in the box, but that kind of just goes against what Phil Parker wants to do as a defensive coordinator. I kind of want to try – this goes back to what Alex was saying about the ain't played nobody. So there are other linebackers, Jay Higgins. Pro Football Focus loves him. He's got an 87 grade overall. They got a 90 or 91 grade for him in coverage. Um, He's got a gazillion tackles, so he's got all the hardware, and everyone loves him. And when you see him playing, he goes in the right direction all the time, and he makes plays all the time. But he's kind of like big-butted. You know, he's like one of those linebackers that that looks like if you get him on on Donovan Edwards – that you could make some hay where nobody in the Big Ten West really has someone talented enough to kind of use that. And he's faster than he looks, but he's not. I I wonder if maybe he's one of those guys where, like, he looks really good because of the system and because of, you know, how who Iowa's been playing. Yeah, well, they did. Uh, there's a little glimmer of that. Illinois, uh, in, the, in the game I charted, was really hunting – the matchup of Isaiah Williams, who's their really fast, shifty slot guy, against those linebackers. Another guy they lined him up State in the wanted. slot repeatedly, and they just tried to go over and over again. And it had some success because those linebackers are good players, don't get me wrong, but they're 230, 235. Isaiah Williams 180 and fast. Like It's just not going to be a, a good matchup. And they were able to hit that a few times. So I think there is a little bit of evidence for that possibility. What I'll say about the run game, something that stood out to me when I went back and watched some of the tape of the last two years, Michigan played Iowa. They ran a lot of reverses and things of that nature, um, end arounds, et cetera. I mean, Ronnie Bell had one, I think, for a touchdown uh, for the first touchdown last year. So that's something I think they will uh, kind of go with because I think against this defense, they're so well coached. They're so disciplined. They know where to be at all times. You got to pull a little bit out of the bag just early on to get them off guard, a little misdirection, just some things that make them think and give them some challenges uh, that they don't normally encounter. And then you mix that in with short passing and uh, then the ability to potentially go to work against those defensive tackles. Cause I think they're, they're solid players, but we haven't really seen them uh, play a rushing attack like Michigan's. Yeah. And so Michigan, if a defensive lineman is getting a tackle and, you know, Mason Graham has an average depth of tackle of one yard. McGregor, one and a half, Benny, 1.6, and kind of down that. There's a couple of guys who are in the two range. Everyone on Iowa is 2.2 or higher. So that kind of gives you an indication of what kind of style they are playing on a down-to-down basis. It's very bend but don't break. And it didn't really work for them last year, except insofar as that they were able to not give up 42 points. They gave up 27 points. But Michigan was just happy to go down the field against them six yards at a time. And, you know, Iowa would hope to uh, get some stops in the red zone. So this year's problem is the problem is this year stops in the red zone 
probably too many points seeded to, to win the game for Iowa, right? Like, right. if Michigan gets two scores, it's probably over if they don't throw an interception or fumble. Like, I mean, the way Iowa beats you is they slow these games down to like everyone only gets like six possessions, and then they stop five of your possessions by just being annoying Iowa and making you punt, and then you get into a punt game with them, and they run the ball just well enough with like a few like little tricky things and they use a lot of end arounds and stuff. Yeah, if you're playing Nebraska or Minnesota. Right. But that's what happens. They they start moving the ball a little bit, not enough to like get towards the end zone. But just chew that clock down and get it to the point where some random punt return is the be all end all of the game. I absolutely agree with Alex. You have to just hit them early. That's how Michigan got them a couple years ago in the Big Ten Championship. I mean, like, that's that was a different, better Iowa team than this Iowa team. Like, last year's recipe was just, like, don't turn the ball over and you win. Yeah. I just – I just – I don't – these games get annoying with Iowa, and Michigan's coming off the Ohio State game. They're going to be – and, you know, they don't have Zach Zinner. Like, I would just – I'd like to get out ahead of them because that makes Iowa have to start pressing. They can't – they can't come back on you. Unless like it's I mean, a three I, point, right? Like, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Michigan's first drive last year was a seventy-five play touch, a seventy-five yard touchdown drive, basically all on the ground. Then they just kind of kept doing that. They got a couple field goals on play uh, on drives with thirteen and twelve yards, and then it was thirteen nothing at the half, and it was over. It's a regular season game, so, though. and Iowa's not had to play a game in weeks. So like, what? They, they they they've locked up the big about? they locked up the Big Ten West like they've been they're they've got some things planned for this game I swear they do they're gonna have some sort of weird punt return they're gonna have something planned for this game because they had the Big Ten okay. West locked up weeks ago and it's not like we're just, that last year we played them in the re- middle of the regular season it was just another game they're they're not gonna just another game this thing they're gonna be annoying because they're Iowa that's what I think I I don't know you've been right on stuff all year whenever we disagree. So I, I'm i not going to say, like, I know this is what's going to happen, but that's what Iowa does. They get annoying. They slow the game down and get well, yeah, annoying. But, I mean, but they they rely on other teams making mistakes. And this is the exact opposite of the kind of team that Iowa wants to play. True. Because I think Michigan is uh, number one in least penalties nationwide. Like, they don't turn the ball over. They don't do all the stuff that various Iowa victims have done to themselves to put Iowa in a position to kick a a game-winning field goal. Mm -hmm. So this just kind of feels like Michigan can probably just put the Porsche in the garage and grind them down, get out of there quickly without injuries, and see what the other playoff scenarios actually shake out. Um, Briefly, their special teams, Tori Taylor is... Uh, the best punter in America by some distance, you know, he might catch a stray Heisman vote if <laughs> Iowa wins this game. Um, it's only because Tommy Doman doesn't get to punt enough, though. <laughs> I mean, well, Corey Taylor's punts, they are they're beautiful. They 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 spin the right way. They're always like the football's always facing in like the right angle, so that when it hits the ground, it just kind of stops. It's 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 a beautiful thing to watch. Whoever's teaching these guys how to punt, like we should just go and buy that guy. I'm sick of watching Iowa have this like one superpower. But um, 
Drew Stevens, their kicker, is 18 to 26 on the year. Had two blocked against Nebraska. They actually brought in a guy named Marshall Meter to kick the game-winning field goal in that game. I and, believe he's a Michigander. And Meter, it was a, I think it was 38-yard field goal, and it would have been good from 40. <laughs> so uh, Stevens is just four of eight uh, from 40 to 49 yards. He has hit a couple of 50 yards, missed a couple one. Missed a couple, but in terms of reliability, he's maybe not quite up to the standard that you would expect. He also has more field goal attempts than extra point attempts. <laughs> <laughs> Iowa facts. <laughs> that's that's not good. Um, and then their return specialist was DeGene, and he is out for the season, um, which greatly harms their ability to do some weird stuff. And, you know, get a uh, special teams play to stay in it. And in any case, Doman is not giving up returns in any phase. So it kind of felt like that wasn't going to be a problem, but with DeGene out, it's much less likely even than it was before. All right. Score predictions, Alex. 27-3. Seth. I I told you they're going to get annoying, but it's going to be 30 to 2.4. Okay. Uh, I got 25 to four. <laughs> I got a weirder score than you did. <laughs> ah, whatever. All right. We're going to take a break, come back and look at the wider picture. Hey, fellow Michigan fans. This is Matt Demarest, realtor and lender for a decade. Now you've heard me on the podcast, talk about mortgages and I've helped hundreds of fellow Michigan fans in that capacity, including Brian and Seth. But many of you don't know I'm a real estate broker as well. I promise to make buying, selling, or financing homes simple and cost-effective anywhere in the state of Michigan. Whether you're upsizing, downsizing, buying a vacation home, or building a real estate investment portfolio, send me a text or give me a call. It's never too early to make a plan, and the call is always free. My number is 734-882-8194. Again, 734-882-8194. Or you can find me online at realtorandlender.com. That's realtorandlender.com. Whether you want to buy, sell, or finance a home or even all three i promise to provide the experience so many of you have come to expect over the years and as always thank you and go blue nmls 1011726 equal housing lender one and two and if you find yourself on the wrong side of the law you want a michigan man in the huddle call criminal law attorney and former prosecutor jonathan paul at 248-924-9458 or visit his website at michiganlawgrad.com John is a proud graduate of the University of Michigan Ross School of Business and Michigan Law School. He looks forward to showing you the Michigan difference. The only thing we can be sure of about the future is that it will be absolutely fantastic. I'm thinking of the incredible breakthrough made possible by developments in communications. Arthur C. Clarke's 1964 vision is now reality with SignalWire, a cloud platform that enables developers to build the applications that will reshape the future of communications. These things will make possible a world in which we can be in instant contact with each other wherever we may be. You can add cutting-edge, real-time video and audio to any product, website, or app. 
application with APIs and SDKs for developers of all skill sets. SignalWire is optimized for high quality and low latency communication functionality for video, voice, and text messaging capabilities. Almost any skill could be made independent of distance. Men will no longer commute. They will communicate. See for yourself at SignalWire.com. Use code 2021 and receive $25 in developer credit. Go to SignalWire.com. SignalWire Communications OGs. Original geeks of programmable communication. Hey, so I have, like, insurance and stuff, but I don't really, like, know what's going on with it. Yeah, it, your your coverage probably sucks, and you're paying way too much for it. And I know this because I had a guy. Uh, he's a uh, his name's Phil Klein. He's actually a Michigan alum and wrestled for Michigan. He okay. looked at my insurance and he was like, "Yeah, your coverage sucks, and you're paying a lot more than you need to for it." I also like I, I hesitate to even mention this, but I do have my insurance from a company that advertises during college football games. Well, and I wish that was not the case. Well, why don't you just get it from a cool guy who actually like reads MGO blog? Well, how would I do that? <laughs> they have a website. They have one of those too. It's philkleininsurance.com. Can you remember the name Phil Klein? Sure. Can you remember insurance? Yes. Okay. Use those two together and you will save money on your insurance and you will actually get better coverage on your home and your auto and they do life too. All right. So you're telling me if I Google Phil Klein insurance, this, this website will come up. Yes. Wonders never cease. This was a triumph. I'm making a note here. Welcome back to MGO Radio 9.12 Conference Championship Games kickoff tonight with the Pac-12. We're going to talk about the playoff picture and what you should be rooting for as a Michigan fan. Uh, the Pac-12 is not going to determine who else gets in. The winner is definitely in. Mm-hmm. And the loser is almost certainly out. Washington might have a slight chance since they would be a one-loss team. Oregon already has a loss to Washington, so this one doesn't really impact the, like, let's not let Ohio State backdoor their way in again this year. But I think it's pretty clear that Washington is the preference here because Washington has been really scuffling down the stretch and Oregon has hit its stride. Alex? Yeah, this is an interesting game to me because I, uh, last night, I think when I looked, it was it was up to 10 was the spread in favor of Oregon. It yeah. might be back down to nine now, but that just seems a little bit wide to me. I get that Oregon's played great. I get that the models love Oregon. Their efficiency has been awesome. Their success rate, EPA per play, all that stuff. They've you know, crushed the teams that Washington kind of struggled with. But when they played in that first game, it was a really competitive game. It was a back and forth game. Um, Oregon outgained Washington, but Washington uh, had them beat on yards per play. So I don't know exactly. The question here is Michael Penix, who was really the Heisman favorite through the first half and then has struggled down the stretch. I think there's been some whispers about potential injury that he might be a little banged up, but he's got to play great. And the good news for Washington is he has played great uh, in his two meetings with Oregon in his career. DeBoer is 2-0 and against uh, Dan Lanning. So Uh, a lot to prove for Oregon side. And I get that we want Washington to win in the abstract, the idea that they're definitely um, worse to SP plus and FEI and things like that. But at the same time, look, if they go out there and they beat Oregon again, like at that point, they're probably the better team, right? I mean, if you, if you beat a team twice in one season, I kind of feel like that makes you the better team. 
And so I, I get that sort of rooting interest, but uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. It, it should be a high-scoring game, a lot of weapons on both sides, two coaches that are super aggressive. They go for it on fourth down a lot. It's going to be fun. I'm, I'm excited. I, I mean, Kalen DeBoer seems to coach better in bigger games. And that's, I mean, you mentioned the, you know, his record against Oregon, but do you remember that first game? Washington looked like they can, were in control of it, and then Oregon kind of came, Oregon came back. And then at the end, Washington had to, like, you know, make, I think Penix had to make, like, two 30-plus yard throws just to get them to the field goal range, right? Uh, and then Oregon missed the last one, obviously. But it was, like, back and forth later. But, like, the first half, it felt like Washington had the edge. Like, Washington was just the better team. And I think that people are basing this off of the last few games. Penix has looked a little banged up and not played well. But, I mean, they played in a rivalry game with Washington State. They had to play at Oregon State. Uh, those teams are, have been, like, getting better over the course of the season. Uh, Oregon caught Utah when they were injured. You know, they gotten healthy again. So, like, that game was more competitive for Washington. I, I agree with you, Alex, that, like, Oregon's a tough team. They're probably the next team after Michigan right now, I think. But I think Washington's a very good team. I think they're very well coached. And if people are just like, I would not bet on that 10-point. I would take Washington that 10-point spread. That's ridiculous. All right, but this is Washington's finish to the season. They win by a touchdown at Arizona. They win by a field goal against Oregon. They win by eight points against an awful Arizona State team. They win by nine against Stanford. Not very good. They win by 10 against an awful USC team. They win by seven against Utah. They win by two against Oregon State. They win by three against Washington State. Oregon has been decimating everyone they play. You know who Washington so, sounds like? TCU Iowa? Last, TCU from last season. Yeah. <laughs> they, they've got a little Team of Destiny feel to them. Uh, crazy well, purples. I mean, Purple haze. That's... Uh, not quite true because I think that Washington is still holding a, an edge on TCU in the uh, fancy stats, but like in terms of teams that look like they're really hitting their stride down the stretch, Washington is not one of them. Yeah, and if they beat Oregon, that will change the narrative a little bit. But down the stretch, they've looked like a good but not great team, and Oregon has looked like a great team. So. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. They were on the ropes against five and seven Wazoo last week. And yep. to the point about DeBoer, that play he dialed up, that jet sweep on like fourth and one at his own 35 and a tie game with a minute to go and they get 30 yards off it. I mean, it's going to be fun tonight. There's a lot of creativity. <laughs> the next game on the schedule is Texas against Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State got absolutely dump trucked by South Alabama and UCF in their non-conference schedule. But... <laughs> Somehow put together the uh, Big 12 wins to make this game. Texas is a heavy, heavy favorite. And if they win that game, Ohio State is out. Yep. So personally, I will be rooting for the Texas Longhorns in this game. Yeah, this is a game where 15 years of narratives basically can can be vanquished to some degree for Texas. They have not won a Big 12 title since 2009. You may remember the Nebraska game with the one more second put on the clock to kick that field goal to win in that one. Long Gosh, time coming. I can't Texas. believe you remember that game, Alex. Oh, yeah, I remember that, yeah. yeah that, was... that does feel like uh, forever. I mean, Nebraska was still in the Big 12. My yeah, God. that was against Ndamukong Sue. So it's been a long, long time for Texas. And if they want to truly prove they're back, they've got an opportunity here, not just to win a Big 12, but to crush Oklahoma State. 
And this OK State team, I think, is 41st in SP+. Not a good team. They are one of the most Mike Gundy of all the Mike Gundy teams. They settled on a quarterback early in the season, which finally got them out of that early funk. That quarterback is Alan Bowman. So uh, (laughs) I guess we have to root against an old friend in in this matchup. But the story for Oklahoma State is they have Ollie Gordon II, who's an awesome running back, one of the best in the country. Texas has one of the best run defenses in the country with two incredible defensive tackles. and, uh, And so that's kind of the matchup here. If Texas can shut down Ollie Gordon because they're in the backfield on every play, I'm not seeing Alan Bowman winning you a Big 12 title with his arm, just single-handedly. It's just probably not happening. So that's the matchup here. Texas, I think, is a 15-and-a-half, 15, 15-and-a-half point favorite. It would be the third largest upset in conference championship game history if uh, Texas is defeated. So they got to win this game. But uh, Bill Connolly, I think, summed it up as Texas is either going to win by 40 or lose by one because that's kind of Oklahoma State season. They've been in a lot of close games, a lot of chaos games. Uh, Quinn Ewers just can't turn the ball over, and if he doesn't, I think Texas should win. But Texas has blown these kinds of games over the past 15 years. <laughs> so have. this is this is them against themselves and all the narratives about their program. Can we address another narrative real quick? The I think it's not just ESPN, but it's mostly ESPN trying to make a case for Alabama over Texas in the in the playoffs. Right, well, let's That's... actually talk about that game first. Okay, Alabama Georgia is the SEC championship game. If Georgia wins, they're the number one overall seed. La di da. If Alabama wins, it's chaos. <laughs> <laughs> and what's because... the line on that one? Uh, five, I think. Georgia by five. So hmm. Alabama lost to Texas. Texas was probably going to be a one-loss conference champion. I don't see how you possibly take Alabama over Texas. It's Especially because Alabama has not exactly looked like a Georgia, right? Yeah. No, Alabama they're... just got a miracle to escape an Auburn team that just got dump trucked by New Mexico State. So... Not to mention no, the see, like South Florida game was close the whole time. Like, but you see the the projections that people are are making, and some of them have both SEC teams in with an Alabama win, which is insane. That's that's got to that's got to be some ESPN. We're just trying to pump up the SEC but, thing. That's ridiculous. Like what? Like what happens if Alabama wins this game? Well, I think one story here is quality of the game that is played, right? This is the final statement for both these teams. That's one thing I'm watching with Texas in particular. You remember when Ohio State ran it up on Wisconsin way back in the first playoff there ever was. I think Texas, if they want to stay above Alabama, should Alabama beat Georgia? That's number one objective, right? They just punked Texas Tech, who I don't think is a ton worse than OK State. Do that to OK State. You know, blow them out of the water, run them off the field. That strengthens your position. Because Alabama is going to get a massive boost by beating Georgia. Like, they will. People are going to, to some degree, absolve them of the Auburn game and some other games if they are the first team to defeat Georgia in two calendar years. So that's something to keep in mind here. But Alabama at at the seven spot, you have to pass a lot of teams for them to get into even the four slot, let alone three. Um, But I don't really know who's going to win this game. Just 
to put it frankly. I think Georgia, everyone is assuming is going to win, and I think that's a reasonable assumption. But I think Alabama's being written off a little bit here just because of how bad they looked against Auburn. Like They're still a dangerous team. They're one of the only teams in the country that's got as much talent as Georgia does. And Georgia hasn't played a great defense this season. They've played a number of great offenses like Mizzou and Ole Miss, but they haven't played a great defense. And if if Braswell and Turner can get pressure on Carson Beck, they could force some turnovers, put some challenges we haven't seen him face this season. And uh, Jalen Milrow is a bit of an erratic passer, but he is athletic as hell. Mm -hmm. And there's there's some avenues for Alabama to exploit and, Nick Saban's record against his assistants is is impeccable. So <laughs> I don't know. Alabama's lurking here. I think the chaos scenario is more likely than than we might think. And the final game is Florida State Louisville. Uh, Louisville has a stunning renaissance in Jeff Brom's first year. Florida State is down. Jordan Travis, who's out the year out for the year with an ankle injury, and. This is another potential controversy because if Florida State does win this game, they are an undefeated power conference champion. They have to be in. They're in. They're they're out. Yeah. If if that's the case, then they're the next one after you know whether Georgia makes it in or not. But like they're three. But then if the if the chalk holds, have Georgia playing Oregon in the first round. And then Michigan playing Florida State without its starting quarterback, <laughs> which is, I mean, all due respect to what Florida State's done this year, seems like Georgia would be a little bit upset about that. Let them be upset. They were upset last well, year when not... Michigan got TCU. Let them be upset because well, this, you know, because the like way it's... they do it, they they laid out how they did this way ahead of time. They said, "Look, we're going to let the first team in, the second team, and the third best team is going to be the third team." Because the if you're the third best team in the country, if you won your conference, you have no losses, and you did it without your quarterback, you deserve to get the two seed, not the one seed. So Georgia can complain all they want to, but. Otherwise, you're screwing the third best team in the country. It should be about the season. I get really upset when people say that kind of stuff because it it should be about your season, not about how what the line's going to be. So, Ohio State has a sliver of a chance. It's not but, much, but it's a sliver, yeah. And the thing that bothers me right now is that Texas is behind Ohio State, which makes no sense. I mean... They'll get their conference championship bump if they win that game. Yeah, they should. But so Ohio State needs Oklahoma State, Louisville, and Alabama to win. Right? Uh, Georgia, Georgia, you and Georgia, yeah, Georgia, and yeah. Georgia to win. Yeah, yeah. And and for good and, measure, they would prefer Washington to beat Oregon because there are some interesting twelve and one versus eleven and one debates there. But yeah, because then you have somebody who beat the conference champion versus someone who didn't. Yeah, that I don't know how the com- the committee would adjudicate that, but. Um, it's not a, it's, it sounds easier than it is <laughs> to, a, in your head, right? You're like, well, all you got to do is get Oklahoma state and Louisville and uh, Georgia and then they're in. But problem with that is that you have to remember again, Oklahoma state's a 15 point underdog. Like <laughs> that alone is an extremely unlikely upset. And then you have to have multiple other games go your way. So the implied probability of that outcome is like two to 3%. Um, 
according to some of the models. I don't know. Ohio, State's, it, so. Ohio State's accomplished those odds before. We, I mean, we live in eternal paranoia of those It's not that. Things, it's not it, just that. We also live in internal disbelief that Texas can get it done. And, you know, <laughs> Alabama may be a little unrated, underrated because they didn't learn how to use Jalen Milrow until, like, the second half of the season. Like, there's there are things that are not in the stats that we're looking at and going, okay – it maybe the chances are a little higher. Just like last year, we're like, well, TCU is not supposed to be Kansas State, but they can. But, so, but one last thing is, okay, let's let's play out the chaos scenario where it's all chalk, but Alabama beats Georgia. Does the SEC get shut out? That's the greatest. It, it will be fascinating to examine because it's the four-team playoff going out in its most controversial style. I mean, we've never had a scenario like this. This is because I, I don't understand how you can possibly put Bama in over Texas. No, like, no, it's not like Bama play, has like a bunch of play the games if that we're going to do that. Yeah, I, I don't think that they will. I think that that is a thing that's being talked about in SEC circles because they can't fathom the idea that winning an SEC conference schedule and then winning the SEC doesn't get you in the playoffs, especially because they've built Georgia into a juggernaut. Like you said, they're the first team that built, and they're going to have narratives. And sometimes the narratives do move the needle a little bit. But the playoff committee is there because they're not supposed to just follow the narratives. They're there to say what's fair. And in the past, when we've argued about well, who's going to be in and who's going to be what numbers, what they've finally done in the end is they looked at who won the games and they made it fair. I think in that scenario, Alabama gets left out. Would they put Bama in over Oregon, though? That's what I'm wondering, too. That's what I'm wondering. Because Washington I, would be an undefeated Power 5 champ. Uh-huh. But in the scenario where it's all chalk except for Bama, then you have three undefeated you have two undefeated Power Five champs who are in Michigan and Florida State. Have a then you have three one-loss Power Conference champions, and it feels like Texas is it because they beat Bama. Mm-hmm. But I don't know what they would do with Oregon versus Alabama. Now I've seen these teams play. I think Oregon is, deserves to be in the in the in the uh, in the playoff, and the fancy stats also agree with that. So if you're taking, you know, if your tiebreaker is who's the best team here, it should be Oregon. Yeah. But, like, will it be, I guess? Is the I don't question. know. It's The thing about the committee is people try and project conspiratorial uh, and nefarious goals from the committee that, oh, they are always cooking the books to get Alabama and Ohio State. And the truth is, not really. I mean, they... They just sort by wins and losses for the most part. They go 13 and 0, then 12 and 1, then 11 and 1. Ohio State got in last year because they were the only one loss team left uh, for that fourth slot. So it's just kind of they they're very simple about how they do it and uh, I would be more swayed by the idea that they were conspiratorial if I didn't know Ward Manuel was on the committee, but I don't really <laughs> think the people on the committee are capable of that sort of thing, but what we also don't know if they're capable of is handling very stressful decisions. And the chaos scenario is the first stressful one they will have had in a long, long time. And uh, it, it's going to be a fun way for it to go out. So, um, yeah, I just I just want to play off without the SEC. I think they would, would be great. I would love it. That would be that would be a fine end to the playoff era, which was so dominated by the SEC. And be like, you know what? In the end, get out. Get out. Don't lose to Texas. 
Yeah. Go, go Florida State. Go Texas. That's what I mean, we do. Oregon just deserves credit for their season. Like they, you know, if they beat Washington when they're number three, if they beat Oregon State, they beat. Uh, I, I don't think they played Arizona, but you know they had a great season and they played better than the Well, we'll see. Starts tonight. Boris is a mayor and a land surveyor with plans of his own. He hates Aruska, he hates a vodka, bandit from his home. He hates Aruska, Ruska, vodka, vodka. He never drank a single drop. He hates Aruska, Ruska, vodka, vodka. This poison he swears is not.